morning. Pastor Craig, if I haven't got to meet you, one of the pastors here, did you know that we are all being trained to be impatient? We are all part of this grand experiment called the modern technological age that is training us to be more and more impatient. Have you ever thought about it that way? Now, for those of you who are not uh, under 30, under 25 maybe, this may be hard to imagine, but there was a time when you met up with someone and you didn't know exactly when they were going to be there. Now, if you meet up with people, oftentimes I will have a meeting on campus or something and you'll get a text. If they're running two minutes late, you get a text saying so. You get a text maybe five minutes later, because if they're five minutes late, you're freaking out, thinking my day is over, I have to reschedule, uh, and that you haven't heard from them. But there was a time where if you were meeting someone at 10.30 and their car broke down, unless they went and found a payphone, knew your phone number, which you barely, we barely know our knew your phone number or called like the movie cinema where you were meeting and said, put out this announcement for someone that I'm running late. There was a time that you had to do that. But now we are so connected immediately to our phones. I mean, most of us, I think, if we're waiting around for five, ten minutes, we've already checked our email, checked our Instagram, checked Facebook a couple times. That is amazing. And I'm saying that as, as most of us, not all of us, I realize. But many of us, I think, are being trained to be more and more impatient. And I worry that it has eaten away at our soul. That more than just this fun little gadget that we have, it ends up having pretty profound effects on us. And then you have the gospel come along and say, wait, slow down, endure, be patient. It's trying to dethrone the now, the tyranny of the urgent is part of what the word is going to be saying to us today. It is a countercultural and hard uh, message, but I think it is essential to being a Christian. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, you are good and holy. You are a God of great mercy that we can even know you and come into your presence. And we ask that you would take this word now and enlighten us, make it come alive to our hearts and to our minds that you would comfort those who are broken and downtrodden, that you would give us peace and rest, and that you would challenge us in ways that we just get tossed to and fro with the waves and with the winds of the world, being caught up in the tyranny of the urgent. Lord, speak to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to look at our passage in Hebrews uh, a bit out of order. I actually want to start in the middle. Uh, the, the 
some may say the hardest section, the middle about the judgment of God that is coming. Because I think that will help us realize what is at stake in the passage, what is at stake in the Christian life. And then we will go to the beginning of this passage, this beautiful six verses about what's been given, and then we'll see what then to do. But the middle section, starting in verse 26, if you were listening carefully, you may have, uh, I don't know, had a lot of questions, wondered what is going on, starting in verse 26. It's very clear that there is judgment awaiting someone, some people. Uh, there is the reality of God's wrath that he is not shying away from, and He's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, and he says, Vengeance is mine, God speaking. I will judge the people. This, of course, is not an easy thing for us to hear, not terribly popular. But I want to first address just the, this myth that has arisen, that the Old Testament is where God is angry. That's the God of judgment, and the New Testament is the God of peace and light and did you hear the part where he says, how much worse punishment if you deny Jesus? I think there's actually something to say that the New Testament has more to say about judgment. That the judgment is more severe. Because in the Old Testament, the judgment and the destruction that we see throughout it was temporal. It was geographical. Israel was told, only do these things in this very specific land. You could, like Moses, be not allowed to be in the promised land, be cast out, and yet be eternally saved. That was, that was a possibility. But in the New Testament, over and over, Jesus, more than anyone else, it's talking about eternal judgment. In 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul talks about excommunication, meaning tell someone they are not a part of the body of Christ, warn them that they may face judgment if they continue in this sin, he then quotes a passage from the Old Testament that is about stoning someone to death. So the temporal, physical judgment then has become translated into excommunication now, because now they're going to warn, we want to warn those who we see have fallen to say, you are going to face something even worse than just death. Even worse than being cast out of the living, you're going to face that eternally. And so, the passage in Hebrews puts it this way, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I want to ask, before we move on, I want to ask, why is this so hard for us to hear and understand? Why does it seem so anti-modern? This is, this is the part where if you invited a friend and they didn't come, you're kind of glad that they didn't come to hear this part. We don't really want to talk about this very much. Why is it so hard? Well, I think, obviously, we can talk for hours about it. 
I think the central part that I find in conversations is that we are off to the wrong start from the very beginning. We've, whenever we are asking questions like this, how can God judge? How can there be such a, uh, hate, it seems like? We're already off on the wrong foot. And one way to get at that is to ask yourself, what seems more, uh, more likely to be real or true? What seems more believable? Heaven or hell? I think to our culture, and to the modern age in general, heaven is, of course, real. How could God not want to spend eternity with us? Right? Of course, I mean, 75, 80%, I don't know. They're going to heaven, right? They're decent people. God would, of course, want to welcome us into the pearly gates or however it's put. Well, that's a very modern stance because before, uh, before maybe the 16th century or so, I think it was the opposite. I think heaven was harder to imagine because everyone knew that hell was real. When you have the Black Plague in your city, you see the wages of sin. You see that God is just. That God is perfect and righteous and holy. And how, and maybe you've heard me say this, but the question I think they were asking before the 16th century was, how could anyone ever get to heaven? How could there ever be a new heavens and a new earth where God is fully present everywhere? That is impossible. That's part of what was being shown in Israel. New heavens and new earth come early. They were supposed to be this little sanctuary, so they had to cast out everything that was unclean. So there's all this destruction and punishment. But now we ask the very opposite question. We say, of course all these people are going to heaven. How could there even be a hell? How could anyone be so bad to have eternal judgment? And this, of course, is true for many of us. true for me when I was coming to Christ in college. This, of course, is a big question. What does this mean? But honestly, and I hope this doesn't uh, sound off, honestly, hell is starting to make more and more sense to me. And I don't think it's because I'm just becoming more cynical. I think, honestly, it is an aspect of an awareness of who God is. A deeper awareness of who God is and a deeper awareness of just how deceitful and foolish sin is. And I'm not saying that's necessarily... The heaven or hell question for me was just a diagnostic question. I don't know which one is the right question. You can bounce back and forth because... I should see heaven as this uh, reality as well because we see the power of God's grace. So both questions, there's problems to them. But heaven should really seem unimaginable too. Have you ever thought about it? That every single little desire, every itch toward greed or lust or envy, Every pain and tear will be gone 
That, to me, sometimes, seems harder to imagine than a place where we are just wrapped up in ourselves and God's justice is being meted out eternally. And so I think oftentimes you hear about the problem of evil, this big philosophical problem that Christians apparently have. How can a good and all-powerful God allow all this evil and suffering? I think we should turn that upside down, just like the heaven or hell question, and say atheists or anyone who believes that all of this stuff is just random, everything that we have has just fallen out of total randomness and material uh, things, have a problem of pleasure. Are you telling me that all of the goodness and the beauty of the world the birds of paradise, have you guys ever watched those nature shows? You're telling me the mating process of the birds of paradise is random? And so I think it's not a bad argument to say that sex proves the existence of God. That something so pleasurable, like going out, whatever it is, it could be going out to the mountains, proves, gives sort of credibility to the existence of God. We turn the problem of evil upside down because the problem of evil assumes what? We deserve some goodness, some pleasure on our own. It assumes that hell is unimaginable, heaven is what we deserve. But we're not out of the woods yet. If we try to understand this passage, he's not just talking about judgment in general, the reality of God, what really is at stake here? He's being very specific because in verse 26, he says, if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains sacrifice for sin. What is going on in this verse? Well, one, the word deliberately is in the emphatic position in the Greek. That's the emphasis. Having, been, having received knowledge is, is having been enlightened, just like his warning back in chapter 6. It seems clear to me that what he's talking about is those who are a part of the church, those who are a part of this community that he's writing to, who have apostatized, which means they have deliberately and consistently and without any repentance continued in sin. Because the only other way, I think, to read this is that somehow you can lose your salvation, you go in and out, in and out, in and out, that doesn't make any sense of the passage. You can't just lose it one day, get it back, lose it one day. It doesn't make any sense of the passage. It doesn't make much sense in the New Testament because if you are in Christ, you have died. Your old self has died once for all. He's, I think he's talking about those who consistently and without repentance, meaning they don't care that they sin. And so remember, a Christian is not known for their great sinless life, a Christian is known for their repentance. These are means that God is using to persevere his saints. And that word means is very important. And if you think about it, God uses means all of the time. God is feeding us through farmers, cooks, chefs. He could, like he did with Israel for a time, drop manna from heaven. That would be no means Immediate, he's going to feed you just manna from heaven out of the sky. 
Doesn't normally do that, though. So he's going to feed us with means through other avenues. He's feeding us. God still is feeding us if someone's doing the farming. In the same way, we need these warnings to realize what is at stake. To realize, as he puts it, that to fall away, to not care, is, in verse 29, as if you are trampling underfoot the Son of God. The one who is now placing all of his enemies under his feet, we are now, if we are those he's talking about, trampling underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. This is a warning to all of us to realize the offensiveness, the personal offense that sin is. Back in chapter 6, there's a similar warning. He says, it's as if you want to re-crucify Jesus. It's as if you want to say to Jesus, it's not quite enough. You haven't quite done enough for me. You say that this is life, but I'm going to find life elsewhere. This is consistent with the other warnings. Hebrews has several warnings, chapter 2, chapter 6. And so often they come coupled with the passage we're going to turn to now, 19 through 25, coupled with these amazing, amazing assurances of grace. Why? Why would such a stark, scary warning be coupled with beautiful assurances of grace. Because there's no other way for forgiveness. There's no other life in the world. He is holding up the supremacy of Christ so high that the higher you get, the smaller everything else seems. And so to want life there, to think that this person can give you life or forgiveness is absolute foolishness. It's foolishness. So let's see what we've been given. He's given us compassionately, he's given us this warning, and then he, because of what he's basically given us as a review passage in verse 19. So we've seen sort of what's at stake. I want to look at what's been given, all this grace. Therefore, brothers, in verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Those first three verses are basically summarizing the last five chapters of Hebrews. And if you're not quite sure what's going on, I encourage you to read those. Because he is saying something incredible, especially to someone who is Jewish. Especially to someone who has been raised thinking the Jerusalem temple is where it's at. There's this place that I've never seen, but the high priest can go once a year for forgiveness, the Holy of Holies, and he's saying that place now, we can all go. We can all go. Therefore, 
He's assuming we have all this. It's an amazing review. Confidence or boldness to enter. Let us then, and then he, he gives us three exhortations that pretty nicely divide up into faith, hope, and love. If this is true of what we have received in Christ, confidence to enter, forgiveness, let us then draw near. Let us draw near because we have access. We have access to what? Access to what? Well, that's partly what I want, why I wanted to start with the middle section, to remember to whom we get to draw near. Because that's what matters, right? You have access to a coffee shop. I got a gift card for Christmas for Starbucks. So I have some access to a coffee shop. That's cool. That's helpful, right? We have, we have a new mayor in New Haven. He's trying to give more access. Maybe some of you got emails from the new mayor. All right, so you have access to the new mayor. We have access to the one who created all things simply through his word, who is almighty, perfectly righteous, and loves us more than we can imagine. We have access to that one. We have access. Now it starts to seem maybe like heaven is hard to imagine. But he's saying you can taste it right now. Let us draw near. Why would you not draw near? Why in the world would you not draw near? I'm going to be going to Starbucks next week because I have a gift card. Of course. Why would I buy coffee somewhere else? I can get it for free. Why in the world would you not draw near? Because you have this simply by faith. He's not discriminating here between the holy Christians and the non-holy Christians. There's no hierarchy in the church. He's saying, therefore, all of us who are in Christ, let us draw near with a full assurance of faith. Do you have that faith? He's wiped away some objections you may think you have to that faith. He said it can't be your sin that's going to hold you back because he has already died for it. Can't be an evil conscience. He's washed that. Despair troubling heart. He has said, put our eyes on Christ. Let us draw near to him. And I love the way that Calvin and Institutes talks about prayer. You wouldn't think. The stereotypes about Calvin, you wouldn't think. But it is an amazing chapter on prayer. And part of it talks about how we shouldn't come to God wondering whether or not he's going to hear us, whether or not he cares. Can you imagine? God, I know you have bigger things to deal with, the Middle East, right? There's an earthquake that happened in Puerto Rico. You have a lot more important things to deal with. But if you happen to have extra time, and if you still think I'm a decent person, won't you help me with this relationship? That is not how we'd have to come to God. What is that assuming about who God is? That he's limited, he can only deal with a few big things, and that his love is so conditional. 
It's unlimited. It's not conditional. So Calvin talks about drawing near with assurance. Of course he hears, and of course he wants your good, because you are in Christ. If, in fact, you are. You have been cleansed. You have been washed, probably a reference to baptism. You have been made into this new life. Why would you not draw near? And I think a lot of times, and I've done this definitely, we think we get so sophisticated that prayer seems so domesticated. It seems kind of boring and kind of small. That is just a total misunderstanding of what prayer is. The ancient church had this phrase, and when translated, it's something like, the law of prayer is the law of faith, which means the way you pray actually shows you what you believe. It actually is a diagnostic question to say, this is what you really care about, this is what you really think you need God for, and so I just, it's hard to pray too much. I would encourage you to draw near. Battle with God. He wants you to draw near. Go to him with your doubts and your sins and your burdens. Read the Psalms. They did not wait for things to clear up. How can you wait for things to clear up without God? That's the exact opposite of the gospel. Draw near with a full assurance of faith is the first one. Then we have this let us... Uh, hold fast to the confession of hope. Let us not waver. He talks a lot about not wavering in the book of Hebrews. Do you remember the, uh, what is it, chapter 6? Is it 6? Yeah, it's a 6. He gives this great uh, image of Jesus as a forerunner. There's a lot of shipping metaphors in the book of Hebrews. Jesus as a forerunner. And he is our, the anchor of our soul, meaning he's the forerunner. We're still out in the ocean. And we have this danger of drifting away from Jesus. But he has the anchor of our soul and has gone ahead of us to shore. He is the one who has defeated death and sin and won, W-O-N. We now are warned, don't drift. Don't waver. And it's an amazing metaphor because you don't wake up one day thinking, I think I want to be an apostate. Today's going to be the day. Had a bad day yesterday. Today's going to be the day. No, you start with little decisions. Little choices where you start to waver and drift. He encourages us not to forsake assembling together and tell the graduating college students, The best way to lose your faith is to not go to church. It's just that simple. It's just going to happen. Do you see what is at stake when we waver? And then finally, he encourages us. We have faith, we have hope, hope and then love here. Stir up one another, provoke one another to love and good works. There's no such thing as being an individualistic Christian. If you read the New Testament, it doesn't 
make any sense. You can't actually obey most of the New Testament on your own. You need to be in a community. And he's saying they have already done all these acts of love. And I think that's true of a lot of us. This is a very loving community. I hear that all the time. That they were struck by the love in this community. So he's saying, remember your love. And now you need endurance. You've been given all of this assurance in what Christ has done in the past. Hope is just that faith in the past focused on the future. Now we endure. And I want to end with this idea of enduring or being patient. I call it patient boldness. And I think part of the challenge is that we need to hear the word patience totally differently than we normally do. Normally, pretty boring. If you say to someone, yeah, he's patient, it's almost like saying he's nice. It's not really a compliment to our ears. But it is essential to the Christian. So before the Christian church arose in the Greco-Roman world, those who were exhorted to be patient were the ones without any power. The slaves, those in poverty, those oftentimes females, they they were told to be patient because they didn't have any other choice. But when the church arose, patience becomes a virtue for everyone. Why? Because we are in a whole different ballgame. We work on a whole different paradigm, a whole different plan, so that patience is not what it seems like to those who don't have any power. It's patience because, why? Why? Why is it totally new? Why should we think about it totally differently? Because of what we've already been given. Because of what Jesus has already won. The past he's already secured. He's our forerunner, which means our hope is just as secure. Hope is another word we need to hear differently. Hope is also focused on the future, and it is secure. We've already been filled. It's that kind of steadfast endurance. I think of the deep roots of the huge tree outside. There's one left. We had to cut down one, unfortunately. But the other one, the deep roots of these thick trees, that's what he's building in us so that we may not waver, so that we may not get tossed to and fro. And he says, you guys were willing to lose so much. What happened? And so that's really my question to you. What are you willing to lose? When do you shrink back? He says, we are not of those who shrink back, but are those who have faith and preserve our souls. When do you shrink back? When are you tempted? What are you not willing to lose? Your reputation, your job, your friends. I think it's a lot more akin to being a marathon runner that seems not very fast to a sprinter for a few seconds. But it's because he is running a different
different race. Did you catch the quote from 1 Samuel? The famous David and Goliath story, we hear it. I grew up on the movie Hoosiers, and it still makes me cry. And at the climax, well, before the final game, the chaplain, you know, weak chaplain guys, you always have got to have like a weak priest in the movie. He quotes David and Goliath because it's supposedly the great underdog story. But it's not an underdog story. It's not. If you hear what David said, he comes out to Goliath and says, you're coming to me with sword and spear, but I will defeat you because I am coming to you with the Lord of hosts. This is not a fair fight on my side. We don't have to shrink back. We don't have to be afraid. Let us hold fast with this full assurance of faith because we know that Jesus is our banner. Let's pray. Father, you are so patient with us. We ask that you would make us patient with you, Lord. You are the refuge of our weary souls, and your mercy seat is open still. We ask that you would let our souls retreat to you with humble hope, attend thy will, and wait beneath thy feet. We pray in Jesus' name.